Welcome to the DWG Podcast. My name is Ben Brace. And I'm Ed Flaxman, and this is your melting pot of landscape conversations. Okay, we're really excited to be in conversation with Loretta and Ben from Local Works Studio today. Um, they're doing some really progressive work in terms of the way they look at projects and bring to the table new ideas to sustainable design and designing for the future. The Local Works Studio are a really interesting practice. They, they're, really, they're exploring the ideas of um, materials, materiality and place within those. They, they often start with kind of desk based research that's difficult to say it is a tricky um and uh, as part of their process they have a kind of hands-on approach they create mock-ups prototype they have a workshop attached to their studio where they can create elements elemental pieces of their projects and um yeah we was we were super keen to explore their processes their approaches to work and um, their ideas of how to approach these larger uh, topics mm. uh, that are kind of um, emerging within kind of landscape and the built environment at large, really. So we hope you enjoy. And here is Ben and Loretta from Local Work Studio. It's nice to meet you both. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, thanks for your time today. It's great that you're able to join us. I am jealous of the nice roaring fire behind you, though. Yeah. That's, uh... Oh, yeah. Oh. We just let that sleep. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> we just sit in there cold normally. So, yeah, I don't know if um, if you wanted to, to kick things off then. I mean, the great thing is that you guys haven't taken the traditional route as such, or at yeah. least not with with the studio that you set up. Um, yeah. How old how old's the studio now? Has it been going for...? Um, well, it's kind of officially the end of 2017, December 2017, but really we were talking about it as a just as a sort of concept um, for about five years, I think. Yeah, it's just been a gradual building conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when when I was at college, because of my because we're down, we're not in London, so it's harder to get jobs, and um, because I've got children, so you know, like when when I first started as a student, I you know I had really young children. I couldn't imagine. You know, I was I was heading down that path. I couldn't imagine how I was going to get to the stage where I'd be working full time in London. You know, I just never thought that was going to happen. So mm. because I've also, you know, we've come from an art background where you kind of make your career anyway. So we, we always thought in those terms, we'll have to just build it the yeah. way we want it to be. So yeah. we're going to have to start a business with what we've got. And, uh, and we just started sort of talking about our the similarities between our sort of two sort of approaches and and the jobs that Ben was getting and the, and the kind of the things that I was starting to learn through doing the landscape architecture. Yeah, I think we sort of, it is, it is, it's a good way to describe it as a conversation between the both of us really because that, that is how it started and, you know, there to be looking at a certain site or maybe sort of certain sort of set of materials and I just pick up that and go, well, yeah, that's, you know, maybe they used that site had access to that material, um, you know, because my background is sort of looking at um, vernacular building, repairing old buildings. And just kind of through that work, you can sort of explore and see within the fabric of these structures how they were made. And they were made from the site, they were made from the landscape. Um, so I kind of I started picking up what Loretta was doing and then saying, well, okay, well, over there they were using this particular stone or... They would, you know, that was actually a waste material that they've reused or repurposed or whatever. 
So it kind of came from this ongoing discussion. I think you had a project. Oh, yeah, well, we, we had a project at college, which is um, it's called No Motonai, which is like a Japanese term. Oh. Um, but it's like, it's a sort of, there's no direct translation, but it's about a sort of like a sense of shame about waste. Mm. And um, so we had a site, um, which is it's a Thamesmead. So it was there's was this thing called the Ridgeway, which is like a, a path that goes through Thamesmead and Plumstead, and it's it's basically a big sort of uh, a giant sewage pipe. It's the southern outfall sewer that goes out into the Thames, and they've built a sort of great big sort of bund over the top of it. And we were supposed to try and use all the materials that were on the site, and we couldn't bring anything in. And what, how we were going to transform that and you know, looking into the sort of history of the, the, the way Thamesmead was built, um, where they'd sort of, they'd knocked down the slums in Deptford and then they'd used the rubble from the slums to build the foundations for Thamesmead. And um, I think it was sort of talking about those mm. conversations about how, you know, like how, just the, the movement of materials and yeah. how, how do you sort of, sort of start picking away those layers and seeing, seeing what's underneath and, how, you know, the sort of historical element of it was really interesting. Absolutely, I mean, with, with historic building, there, there is there wasn't such a label as waste. Um, so every everything was a material. Everything was up for grabs. Everything was a resource. So you know, you can kind of, but in a in a traditional building or traditional landscape that's been worked by by people, you know, it's, it's very readable. You can kind of look into the materials and and see how each material has altered the style or has affected how things look or how they perform, how they last. Um, but yeah, that, that project kind of, it really sort of clicked for us, I think, in terms of, oh, actually, from these two seemingly disparate uh, practices from building conservation and landscape architecture, there is a, there is a kind of meeting point. There's, there's a point where it does kind of come together and possibly that hasn't been explored much in the past before, but... Um, yeah, we just thought it was a good, a good kind of starting yeah. point. And there's not much different. It's just basically dealing with building and space, mm. like indoors and outdoors. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. And for me, <laughs> I mean, no. I'm not a landscape architect, but I think of weirdly as myself as kind of somebody who who builds buildings from the landscape. Mm. So that is kind of landscape architecture, as far as I'm concerned, for my practice. It's definitely about the site. It's about the the landscape and what that is bringing up in terms of not only geology, but kind of byproducts and waste and all sorts of stuff. And does that very much come from your experience in working with sort of heritage buildings where in their very nature it's about conserving the character and, and a lot of that is through the materiality, isn't it? And with even planning restrictions lend themselves to, to that side of things, isn't it? Yeah, and it's about, I think for us it's about, we're not trying to sort of do historical reenactment, essentially. <laughs> we're... Um, you know, we're just we're just looking for for inspiration from the way that things were done historically. Possibly, mm -hmm. doesn't have to end up looking like a kind of some kind of mock Tudor mashup. It's just you know you're just you're picking out things. It might not be the materials. It might be the crafts. It might be the processes um, of that area or of that site that you're kind of going to play with. Um, so yeah, we're not trying to sort of end up with some. Oldie, oldie yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just taking the, the looking at the practices that people used to do out of necessity, which made things 
which was sort of economical and, you know, made sense to their way of life and looking at sort of habits of living and how that affects the landscape or the building. Mm. And yeah, it's about the sort of social context as well. So I think what, you know, you learned a lot through working in buildings, you often learned about the way that people live their lives nearby or the sort of the, the society that they lived in. And I think it's, you can all, you can sort of take those lessons and apply them to sort of problems that we have now in society or in the way we build things. Yeah. And I think that, that really nicely kind of is summed up. I really loved an extract on your website where you say, we are makers and thinkers who design places with people we are optimistic, collaborative, creative, and inquiring, which uh, I think is a fantastic way of kind of summing that up. But but how does that work? How does that? What does that look like in your studio? Kind of on a. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sort of. I mean, a project can easily start for us um, with research. So so we may depending on on what sort of the final brief is, but we will probably throw a very tight radius on a map uh, of the site and really start to, to do desk-based uh, desk researching to what is available, um, you know, not only kind of underneath the ground, but through byproducts and waste and everything from there. Um, we'd start a project like that mostly. Yeah, and looking, well, I mean, obviously with the site and going there, it's always, it's always just so specific to that place and, and the people that are using it and what they want from it and but you also need to look at yeah the sort of networks of people and what skills they have and uh, um just start to build relationships with people and understand what they what what's holding them back from having the kind of environment that they want and understanding if there's ways that you can sort of um intervene in the way they um, use the site in order to make it in the most efficient way to make it the, the way they want it to be. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of amazing how quickly you can kind of open up a seemingly barren site as well. It could just be like we've, we've got a project at the moment where we're making um, certain materials to repair, repair a building and um, you know you could go to Travis Perkins or whatever and buy off the shelf materials but really you know through one we've actually just done it through one email i think has linked us to a whole network of local um producers and also people who own woodlands in a specific area that we can tap into um and use their products and go and get their materials and it didn't take much it's not some kind of huge headache to do things like this can open up very quickly and very easily actually and um, we found and the people who've been involved with they you sort of go out there and you think you've got to persuade people but usually everybody's like oh my god this is what mm. we've wanted to do for ages we've just yeah. been looking for you know like for example the for, the uh, mm. the wood so we've gone to a um a wood that's like about three miles away from the site and they uh, it's a uh, community enterprise so they've somebody has bought the woodland and it's been you know it's totally neglected and they've started to to use it um and sort of maintain it but they they've only just started to find a kind of an economic um way of using it so they've been sending a lot of stuff to um what's it called biomass yeah which, but they want to find you know they want to find more uses for it that have a relevance nearby but they don't 
you know, if there's no industry that is interested in it, mm. then it's very difficult for them to start kind of yeah. producing it. And this is high quality chestnut coppice timber that's being chipped for, you know, for biomass, for fuel. Um, but you can use that for, you know, the, the, the amount of kind of applications of this material is amazing for building and landscaping. But they um, need that relationship between yeah, us no and them. And they, they have all the knowledge. It's not like we have to go there and tell them what to do. No. They already know how to do it. And they know, you know, they're really good, sort of really excellent knowledge of sort of forestry and mm. the kind of, you know, they already kind of, the knowledge is out there, but it's just people sort of connecting people up. And, and approach a project then is that you look at the materiality or the local kind of what makes that place through its materials and that's the starting point for your kind of design process in a way is that kind of how it works it is in a rural context i mean it's, it's a little bit different in an urban context where the majority of the work is mm. um, and then you start to look more into uh, uh, sort of waste materials because it's it's you know like in a rural context with a nice kind of site and a good client it's really great to sort of have that luxury to be able to go oh well you know there's a working woodland nearby and all, all of that kind of stuff because it really it's so much easier to work with yeah. and you have raw materials so that's and that that suits a kind of heritage context but I guess in a city there's much less readily available sort of raw materials although you'd be surprised I think probably yeah absolutely there's a lot of Byproducts and waste. We're working in um, in the borough of Newham on a big project at the moment, and um, you know you can really through through mapping again to start to start the whole process. You can really start to open up. I think in the city as well, you, you get the you get the interesting kind of um, vernacular crafts and kind of people who are making either kind of quite hidden, almost like hobbyists in their sort of circle of. Uh, groups or whatever making little things um, but you can start to open up little networks of makers as well as kind of um, material so there's these two sort of strands there's, there's the sort of raw material but there's also the kind of the crafts and the making um, which is which is there as well it almost feels like um, you know you guys have filled that kind of niche of this catalyst between you know the the, the raw um, materials and the makers and the and the doers and mm. you kind of stitching those together which um you know like you say ben there's, there's always been that kind of kind of undercurrent of people who are you know tinkering away in their sheds and <laughs> things um and not necessarily really thought about applying that to uh, like a bigger project or applying it to oh. a bigger scale i think that's a re really Interesting development, I think, for you, for construction and for also, you know, projects um, that are coming online, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy job, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but it's, you know, I think we're sort of try, trying to start with kind of reasonably manageable projects and then mm. trying to sort of learn the best way to do it and trying to sort of build up uh, kind of knowledge of how to apply it on bigger, bigger scales. Because as soon as you start to get to bigger scales, then you have... Um, as you know very well, the sort of time constraints and yeah. financial constraints, which almost this this kind of approach is lends itself to a more sort of incremental way of doing things, and that's very difficult to do on you know with uh, large contractors with all the kind of risks that are involved in big, big building projects. But I think it's if in order to 
because it hasn't really been done for a very long time, it's it's we just have to find a way of doing it that suits those people in the most easy way possible. And we're sort of doing that through um, different means as well, because there's there's a sort of there's a side of our work which is definitely maintenance and repair based, and that can be landscape. So we're working with a um, kind of community uh, wild space in terms of the maintenance of that, as well as sort of built environment as well. Um, so that can be kind of maintenance and repair can be sort of more manageable scale wise. You're not you're not starting from nothing. You know you've got something there you're you're trying to maintain. Um, but also on the flip side, trying to trying to do new things from scratch as well. It's also with um, the way things are funded, so through capital funding rather than you know like with. with We've worked quite a lot with um, local authorities and because all their projects, they get a big load of funding yeah. and it's like, spend it now and make sure it's low maintenance. <laughs> and that's kind of it. You know, that's the like the brief. And then to to start to sort of maybe see if you can change the way things are commissioned or procured so that there's more of an emphasis on... Um, yeah, long, no. longer term <laughs> care, really. Yeah, on maintenance. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. If you if you do have um, a maintenance plan in place, that gives you a much wider palette of materials to play with. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're saying it has to be maintenance free, then you're basically dealing with bomb-proof plastic and concrete, concrete, and you know whatever else. But you know there should. I think there always should be. I think maintenance is a great concept that, that needs to be reintroduced to everything. Really. Maintenance is is, <laughs> is the, a critical element of any the success of any project. Absolutely, mm. it, it sort of hangs on that. Absolutely, I think you know we spoke about you know you, you guys filling this or uh, creating this niche for yourself, and you're kind of like blazing a trail for new ideas and kind of these ways of thinking and approaches to um to work and um, i just we just wondered um do you feel that process is one that could possibly work in a more kind of conventional landscape architecture practice or, or an architectural practice i don't know i mean i think it might be that landscape architecture practices or architecture practices will have to change the way they work anyway mm. with the sort of um with targets for reducing CO2 um, and, you know, reducing waste. There's so much, <laughs> you know, all this, this uh, there's thing in the news about the fly tipping where, you know, kind of there's just been a massive increase in fly tipping because people are just, have, you know, they can't afford to throw things away. So they're just, you know, getting rid of it. But it means that there's a real crisis in, you know, what do we do with all this stuff? There's also, you know, a crisis in the amount of um, things that we're consuming in terms of, um, creating CO2 and the transport of things and there's you know I think that people were so, very rapidly had to change the way they work so maybe we are part of you know we're one of the people who are going to are working out how that could be done differently yeah. and that might need to be made much more um, efficient and fluid or yeah, I don't know something you know it's a funny stage isn't it it's kind of we're sort of guinea pigs with it to a certain extent, but um, this this concept of a of a circular economy, a circular way of working, um, just has so many benefits, obviously. But um, in terms of landscape architecture and building, we've been talking about this recently a lot between ourselves. That um, that actually the kind of the food 
uh, industry, we call it an industry, has tackled this really well um, in terms of conveying this to to the public or whatever that uh, you know food miles is bad um, shop local eat local eat seasonal you know all these kind of things um, these concepts have worked really well for food for catering for restaurants and everything um, but maybe the sort of design landscape architecture architecture has, has not sold it yeah, they haven't really done it as well as the food. Do you think that a lot of that's to do with public change of their sort of mindset? Whereas food, people are asking supermarkets, actually, I don't want my food in you know plastic containers yeah. or whatever it is. But when we buy a house, we're not saying actually what what was the sustainable processes that went on into yeah. that. House? What is you know the carbon impact of that house? And and I mm. think a mindset, isn't it? When the public start asking those questions, then developers are going to have to start answering those questions, aren't mm -hmm. they? So I think maybe our industry is maybe a little bit behind some of the others, which um, which is a shame, and it's practice yourselves that are going to push that forwards. I think it's about it's about kind of designing for deconstruction as well. Yes. So mm -hmm. that's, that is a big new concept, well, not new concept, but it's a, it's a big concept that's coming through at the moment. Um, and it is about the deconstruction of of what you're making so you, you have to plan for the future of it uh, at the design stage um, you know the majority of environmental decisions about the, the life cycle of a building or a landscape are made by the designer yes. you know, it's not made by the consumer you know it's, it's up to us effectively to to kickstart the process in the right way and you know and and to push that agenda forward yeah, yeah. Uh, to our clients and to you know decision makers absolutely mm -hmm. i guess it's also to do with um being accountable and making that whole thing transparent so having to measure how much carbon impact there is for all the buildings and i guess the more people who adopt um being in their sort of practices is that becomes something that's like just normal every sort of large project has to have that sort of level of understanding of what's coming in and what's going out and what the impacts are. Mm. I think then that's the point where people all start to sort of go, oh God, we've got to like, yeah. but that, I mean, that, that's a sort of an interesting thing. We started looking at a, a larger project recently and how um, we would work with some engineers to to sort of make our, you know, vernacular practices um, somehow kind of, um, how, how do you kind of put a, how do you make a sort of BIM model of uh, an old kind of uh, yeah. famed barn and yeah. then start, start putting modern things inside it and how do you, how do you sort of uh, get all the kind of information about those things which are not standard? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Um, how, how we can, you know, that we're, we're almost um, ahead of the software, you know, in terms of, you know, th thinking about the circular economy and you know, that, that, that example you just made there, we're, we're kind of stretching the capabilities, I, or I can see, of the software already. So we're, we're going ahead yeah. of the software um, if we're thinking, you know, in terms of reuse of old buildings and things like that. So. That's a really interesting mm. thought. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mull over that. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, if you're talking about, say, you wanted to use wood from a forest that's nearby, mm. but you know, everything that you're getting is non-standard, and how how do you put that into a, you know, like a, a kind of 
a program like that and make you know everything mm. has to be exactly the same to yeah. you know there's there's tolerances but yeah sorry yeah, that's a little so, yeah picking up on that circular economy idea is it because we make things so bespoke and historically because mm. buildings are so bespoke that that makes it almost more difficult to then take that material on to another use entirely and, and whether we need more standardized materials and standardized sort of almost sizes of materials but then that takes an element of design out of it so it's a really difficult yeah it's tricky it's tricky yeah. so i think one of the main things in terms of circular economy and therefore deconstruction of whatever you make you have to make sure that you're not permanently fusing materials together so yeah you know, if you're making something unrecyclable, you, you want to keep the raw materials separate and separate enough to be kind of deconstructed. Yeah. Um, if you start kind of chucking them all in a big kind of vat, boiling it up with plastic and then <laughs> casting bricks or something, you go, oh, it's recycled plastic with, you know, but then you can't, you can't kind of take that apart in the future. You, you've kind of already made it um, last forever in a nasty state. You, know, you kind of... Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, and and I think a lot of that comes down to that manufacturing process. And interesting, I was listening to a, a podcast recently, the Developer Podcast, and they they had a really good way of saying that if a manufacturer develops a light bulb to be sold as a single-use light bulb, they're going to do it for the cheapest possible process, the cheapest materials, and have a short lifespan on it because they want the buyer to buy another one in two years' time. Yeah, if they rented that light bulb, they'd make it from the highest possible quality yeah. and want it to last as long as possible because they get long-term revenue from yeah. it. Yeah. Could we rent material in buildings yeah. and then yeah. then become a bit of a, a material bank for the future? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly. a way of looking at it. So it's it's getting the the manufacturing side, the end use side, everything working together, isn't it? And I think that's where this way of thinking is starting now and, and you know in recent years and it needs to then move on to mainstream doesn't it but i think that that that's still that kind of whole concept actually applied in the olden days <laughs> you know yeah, that's you know right. like the, a building you would never sort of just knock a building down chuck it away and then start again you would always it was always a, a sort of like a material store it was a bank, you know, that's actually, it's only just this kind of interim period where we've slightly lost our minds mm. and we've got, you know, like we've got to kind of find a way to do it on a, on bigger scale to, to, to standards, but at the same time be flexible enough that um, you don't need to standardise everything to the point where you can't work with it anymore, you can't reuse things. Mm. I mean, there's some really interesting things happening sort of in the world of, of kind of making as well, where... Where kind of uh, it becomes uh, the transportation of materials is obviously a large problem. So you can there was one company that has a range of furniture, um, but you when you order it anywhere in the world, it is made by your most local maker. So the designs are downloaded straight to some guy down the road, and he makes it. It's not that it's all being made in one location and then shipped. You know, there are kind of ways of doing that. There's ways that buildings possibly can be kind of made um, and processed up from the site um, rather than you know, elsewhere. So, yeah, there is some interesting things happening at the moment. And it's also about making it palatable for people. So um, there's a um, company called Rota in Belgium, yeah. And they are really sort of massively um, involved in the sort of um, in strategic plans for Northern Europe on 
uh, in circular economy, but also um, they have a sort of branch which is called uh, rotor deconstruction, and they take whole buildings and and not sort of like nice old buildings, but like you know horrible kind of noughties and nineties yeah. buildings and kind of um, deconstruction. But they find that they um, they try to sort of sell the whole building, you know, the contents of it onto a new building site. But they also have to kind of almost repackage those materials so that people feel like, oh, I'm buying a new thing, you know, so they put them in sets of six and they, you know, like they put a little instruction thing on, you know, it's it's making it so that almost kind of standardising again and making people feel like they're getting a, a real thing, not mm. just a load of rubbish. But they're, they're, they're taking apart down to a very minute level as well. They're taking the electric switches apart and selling the screws and, you know, everything, like way, way, way down. <laughs> yeah. um, not just the interesting bits. So that's, you know, it's, it's a really good good model, I think. Mm. Yeah. I see. So, you know, we've spoken about materiality of the project, things like that. Um, so your kind of um, approach to a project is, is very much driven by what you find or what you can find. I'm quite interested to understand the, sort of, um, the conversations with your client, with the clients you've had. Um, obviously, the, the clients are probably self-selecting and they're, they're very much up for this, but have you had any difficult conversations with clients or conversations with your, with your clients that have made you think um, slightly differently about your approach? Uh, probably everyone, but I can't think of a, yeah, an example. Standout example. Um, I mean, everyone is very, really up for the, you know, once you sort of introduce the concept of, of our way of working, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest and, um, and people can really see the benefit. I think it's, it's been down to us to kind of prove that it can work as well. So, um, so that's, been, that's been very important in that process. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's demonstrating in, some, in, a, in an approach that's quite new, demonstrating that, there's, that it will work for people is really hard i think it's people convincing people to take a risk mm. on something there is a slight risk but you kind of it's, it's, it's kind of showing people that you can actually produce something that's, that's really quite beautiful it doesn't look like kind of junk art it doesn't look like kind of uh i don't know you know when you sort of say you're using waste or byproducts there are certain kind of pictures that come into people's minds and to sort of <laughs> To then prove that you can make something that is very bespoke and new and beautiful and everything, you know, that, that's been really great to sort of see people react to that that situation as well. Um, and even when you start talking about kind of, you know, we did a project using um, oyster shells from uh, as waste as a waste stream from restaurants in Brighton and um, and repurposing them into into tiles for cladding for a building. And, and this was really just based on a historic technique. It wasn't uh, something that we invented. This was used by, by kind of communities around the world. Um, but to kind of just kind of bring that back to light, it's a, it's a really good story. And, uh, but alongside that, you know, visually, they did look really nice as well. So it kind of, it was a good outcome. I think a lot of people were attracted by the idea of also the social value that might come out of our approach. So the kind of, um, you know, as, as well as kind of environmental concerns, it's sort of, it's something that, that people don't expect that might come out of it is that if you take an approach where you're building, you're sort of getting local suppliers involved and you're um, training people in, in new skills, 
that apply to where they live, that they don't have to get people um, coming from far away, but also that you can, um, if you get people engaged in maintenance and looking after things, then there's, yeah, there's all sorts of social benefits that people weren't expecting and they, they can suddenly see that like, ah, oh, you know, I, we've been wondering how we were going to do that. So that's a kind of, that's a good thing. Well, certainly the first thing that, that drew my attention to you guys was that real exploration of place within the materiality of a project. It's just kind of endlessly fascinating to me. And if you come up with a, a beautiful product at the end, you know, it's just the the initial thoughts and initial ideas and visual um, um, pictures that people conjure up in their head is like the skip yard garden or jump out. And uh, I think it's an important thing that waste through processes can, can become beautiful. Yeah, I mean, we, we're actually trying to ban ourselves from using the word waste as well because sure. <laughs> it is just another material, and you know, this is part of the palette of. It's a material without function, isn't it? Basically, yeah, exactly. It's like a you know, what's what's the term for a weed in, in the garden? It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, the same I'm kind of concept. In the wrong <laughs> My plant palette on most projects is considered. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when you approach a uh, a project in yeah. your studio. Like, where does that? Do you look at a project? Do you already have ideas and materials in your head, or do you look at a project and think, you know, this has got a history of, you know, like you mentioned the uh, the shell. Is it shellcrete or shell cladding? Uh, what what sparks that initial idea, or or how does that sort of process come about? It can it can sometimes be totally material led in that the first we already know what, what it has to be made out of. Mm -hmm. So so there we're just kind of exploring the possibilities within that material. In terms of the the oyster shell thing, that was we didn't know what that was going to be when we started the project. That was purely out of the research um, and discovering waste streams uh, from from the restaurants in Brighton. I don't know. I'm like I get I get really really obsessed with materials and uh, processes, and I will dream about them every night, and uh, I can't think about anything else. So I, we do have we each have a background in because we both studied uh, sculpture as well. We have backgrounds in certain materials, but equally we work with anything. So I will at the moment I'm obsessing about uh, coppice chestnut and everything about it. <laughs> but uh, next week it's going to be something completely different. Um, yeah, it's all about the context of yeah. the place and how. Yeah, and that's it's all, it's always a, a real process of discovery if you take that approach because you just never know what you're going to turn up. And and it, even if the sort of surface they might be well, you know, we're in the downs, so it's chalk. You ne you you know you start to uncover things once you start talking to people. Like, oh, haven't you been round to so-and-so's? Because they're always chucking out, mm. you know, this stuff. Or they're making this amazing, you know, so it's, there's always these kind of layers that you start to uncover. And that's the exciting part. Yeah, I mean, even just last week yeah. for one project, we had there's three different materials we needed for a certain project. Some of them was chalk, but then we ended up, um, we also needed animal hair. <laughs> so we ended up getting uh, dog hair from a dog groomer um, and you know you get a bag of this material and you, you know you, you didn't start the week thinking I'm going to end up holding a bag of dog hair what am I going to make out of that you know you kind of you do end up in that situation it's brilliant I love it yeah. uh, the potential 
for use of all of those materials is just, you know, endlessly fascinating and mind-boggling. Yeah, I totally get your obsession. <laughs> I think, you know, there's such a critical element to all projects within the built environment that um, I think you know, it's all, all too easy just to go, Marshall's this and um, chalk on that and just, you know, it's easy. But, you know, within our own kind of professional obligations, I think, you know, that we should really be looking at these alternative mm. products um, Absolutely. in light of all of these sort of big societal issues that mm. are pending. But I'd, I'd love to see your spec sheets as well, you know, traditional spec yeah. sheets, paving, <laughs> animal hair, you know, chestnuts, seashells, I'd love to, and, and how that, how you'd put that as a planning application for the material specifications would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the animal hair has yet to be uh, tested. In, yeah. uh, <laughs> but then you still have, you know, kind of historical uh, um, sort of constraints as well. You have to kind of keep, because that, that's a, for a historical project. So it's, Yeah, we have to match, you know, that's part of um, conservation work. You have to match what was there. And they did often use quite freaky materials. So that's, you know, it does throw up stuff. Um, but it's good to sort of challenge those, I think, yeah. as well. Oh, definitely. We, um, I think it would what we want to take, do is take the, the best of all that kind of stuff and try and sort of apply that to a modern situation. Try, you know, you know, we don't, we're not total sort of luddites. No. <laughs> uh, can we can use a spreadsheet? Yeah, you know? we're not, we are slightly analog, but yeah. Actually, one thing you know, you were saying about the um, the the conversations with clients and had we sort of come up against any difficult conversations, and quite often it's more like when people don't care about the context at all and they'll say i just i saw your oyster i saw your oyster shell thing i just we just want some you know and, and they're in like i don't know like birmingham or somewhere uh, and they're like just and um, we want them really quick and can you make like um you know like 40 square meters or you know like they just sort of haven't quite got the the concept of um that we work with what's sort of available nearby and what makes sense for the site and for the people that use it rather than they just, they just want a product. Yeah. And I think that's very much, that's something that we do come up against is that um, people think that we're, maybe we're product designers, we make materials for anywhere and they say, can, you know, can I have some of your stuff? And they don't, you know, so I think it's for us that we've got a real, um, we have to make sure that people understand that, our approach is based on what's right for that place rather than mm. um, what, lo what looks fancy. Yeah, that has been a major, major issue. I mean, we do we do get our products, if you can call them products, or our features or our materials tested um, so that we can back them up with, you know, we can prove that they, do, they are kind of able to do what we say they can do. Uh, but once that's done, that kind of, that's parked, you know, we'll be on to the, the next job will be a different material. So, yeah. It's absolute, that has been an issue is that people want to replicate that product somewhere else. You know, that won't, won't work. Well, it's going to totally like <laughs> yeah. defeat the object. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that, that kind of picks up, you mentioned about kind of your previous kind of experience and then very much in the construction and, and you know, the, the nuts and bolts of these materials. But I just wanted to pick up as well, you mentioned about placemaking and you've done quite a bit of work on placemaking and yes. vernacular. Do you think that's very much part of the course, the, the harmony between those two elements? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, um, yeah. I guess the sort of placemaking that I've been involved in is 
in cities where um, you're trying to get people involved in designing a place. And and also, well, I mean, we've started to do things like what they call co-production, so getting uh, communities involved in actually producing stuff and, and yeah. working with materials and making stuff for the public realm. Um, so that's, I think that's a really nice sort of uh, balance to have between this really sort of intense materiality <laughs> and we're going out into the woods and making things yeah. and then having to balance that with really sort of diverse and yeah. uh, sort of large communities and big contexts and how, you know, how do you make this kind of like oldie worldy stuff relevant to these people who have mm. a lot more other things going on in their lives and concerns and, you know, how bringing those two things together is a real sort of... I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if we'll sort of succeed on that, but it's just, it's, it re is really sort of informs our practice. It's really good to have that kind of reality check from, yeah, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, these yeah. kind of really um, dense urban situations. And how do you kind of get people sort of more in touch with how they live are made and how the consequences of building and construction and how how they can sort of get involved in that or how they yeah, interact it's, with that. It's kind of getting giving them ownership of their environment. Yeah. You know, if, if there are materials kind of coming up from a community, if there's construction work going on, you know, they should have access to those materials coming up under their feet literally a lot of the time. You know, they, they need to it'd be great if people can understand how things are made. Um realise the sort of potential in these raw materials sometimes that's that are, that are kind of being excavated and then, and then highly kind of high speed taken taken away somewhere. But it's also that thing about um, connecting with networks and it's a two-way street. It's not just us mm -hmm. coming along going, this is what you can do and this is, you know, you need to learn this and you need to do this. It's more also finding out what people already know. Yeah. Just making the best, you know, sort of making the best of that. You know, if they haven't got those opportunities, you you can find a role for as landscape architects or whoever to enable those people to apply their knowledge and their skills and about their context and where they live to to the construction and design of it. Yeah, mm. I was going to ask through that through that process, have any stories emerged through through that sort of community process? that have kind of set you down a, a different route to, to your, to what you kind of set out to. Oh to yeah. There's always, there's <laughs> always people sending you, <laughs> you know, bringing you up <laughs> and saying, actually, it's not like that. It's like this. But, um, <laughs> but definitely, I think people, um, in terms of making people are much more able than they think they are. Mm, to yeah. make, they, they, you know, they, sometimes they haven't kind of ever picked up a tool or ever, ever thought that they could even own a drill or, or, or use a saw. But they, you know, it's quite empowering to see people um, changing their, their local environment and realising that they can actually get involved in that, in that sense. Yeah, some of the, um, a lot of, like, sort of women's groups that we've worked with have um, really enjoyed that, that mm. sort of permission to uh, get involved with power tools. <laughs> Yeah, loving it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess quite often, if there's, uh, you know, um, I did a project embarking, and it was in the sort of uh, area around uh, Thames View, which is kind of 
a bit more of a sort of an isolated part of Barking, which is separated by the A30, whatever it is, no, the A, <laughs> I can't remember, the big A road. A30. And then there's a huge sort of industrial estate that sort of rings that. And a lot of the people who live there work in that those industrial estates and they work with, you know, really sort of um, mass produced uh, materials like concrete and sort of learning from the way they work, you know, day to day yeah. in their industries is actually really sort of informative. And, you know, things like um, uh, the amount of sort of waste concrete that gets brought back to sites after. So they, they go to the, uh, the building site and they have to bring stuff back. And what do they do with that waste concrete? So just talking to people who operate um, in those sites or who, um, you know, like they drive yeah. the concrete mixes or whatever. That's At a very large kind of, scale as well. Yeah. Yeah. Realise the, the byproduct or the waste of that. Yeah. So often the people who uh, seem like, they're, you know, they're not the designers or the architects, but they know exactly what's going on. And that, that can be really sort of informative. <laughs> so it kind of sounds, you know, your process, I'm just trying to picture it in terms of, uh, I guess, more conventional landscape architect practice. Know the local that site and look into the local kind of makers and local materials and that's kind of how on any scale of project that can really be the key to so i guess you know the process that you use really to taking it forwards um well so a lot of well the way we work has also been informed by my work with um, the decorators and okay. um, so they are they sort of work on mainly temporary um, urban design projects where they're brought in um, in a usually in situations where um, there's some sort of transition from you know like um, one state to another. So um, there might be a sort of development happening, or they you know the local council wants to change the use of a street or something like that. And the way they um, approach sort of engaging with people is. Um, they try to sort of avoid the situation where you have, you know, you go in and um, put some pins on a map or you do some post-it notes and then, you know, that kind of standard con consultation process, which is really people are already a little bit tired of and it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really sort of get to know people properly. So they um, quite often will go and um, do a lot of extensive sort of interviewing. So they'll produce a podcast for an area. Um, based on lots and lots of conversations and they'll bring people together for, um, like through food or whatever and those conversations are, are how you start to sort of build that knowledge of the place and also how you begin to connect people um, so I think I've learned a lot from working with them and def definitely that's kind of influencing the way that we've started to uh, branch out from just doing desk-based research where you kind of look at the map and you see the geology and you see you know who's working where but, but actually getting to know people and uh, how they sort of it is it's through, it's through often quite informal chats you have with people um, that the real kind of gems come out yeah. so to realise how their materials are used or, or what you know their great granddad did when he lived there and he made this and it was made out of old doors or something you know whatever <laughs> you know it's through those kind of just really kind of quick chats and, and interviewing and stuff that you, yeah the research does does involve that too. Yeah, I think it just adds a richness. I guess um, what we'd like to know is what's next for local works. <laughs> I think we've yeah, we we've kind of we've we've really been quoting for some quite big things, but we've sort of recently we just want to 
see through some some jobs um, at a, at the right kind of scale for us at the moment um, to prove to prove all the all these ideas work, um, which we you know we we've, we've been doing for for the last kind of two years or so. Um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of this... <laughs> developing the the telling the story about it because I guess because we're a small practice, there's a limit to how much we can do. And I think something we've really started to enjoy doing is um, sharing that kind of our own journey with other people, so that that can you can see how that could be applied at, at different scales, and to just just generally kind of uh, bring other people along on that that journey. So we've started to sort of make films about what we're doing, and that I think is once you start to kind of um, tell the story of it, then you can kind of imagine how it would be in other scenarios it starts starts to sort of have its own life um, yeah it's been a really good process we've been yeah making a short film um specifically about one job but you know that is really it's opening opening up a lot of doors really because people are sort of interested in the film and want to screen the film but also other jobs are like oh can we just we've got to document this as well you know we need this is we need to tell the story it's great for um for organisations to be able to communicate um, to their public um, the story of a development or the story of a repair or the story of you know the new construction, whatever. Um, because you know, this one client I'm working with at the moment and they they've never really talked to their public about the repair of their their kind of built environment. Um, and, uh, and, you know, to have this short film, even kind of clips from our footage or audio as well, interviews that we've done with with foresters or, or makers or, or, you know, whoever, um, they're, they're seeing this as a really valuable part of, of, of our, our involvement, is, is the storytelling. And I suppose the, the other thing is that sort of developing our uh, strategic approach, because I guess... Um, you know, we're getting a lot of interest from councils and things on how, and, and this is something I know that their public practice are doing where they're trying to see how circular economy can be applied on a sort of council level. And, um, you know, developing kind of ways of doing things, systems of doing things that can be sort of scaled up and, you know, sort of also, yeah, looking at the much more sort of nitty gritty of what we're doing and seeing if, that you know, there's logical ways of applying that and... So I think we're sort of we're gradually building a kind of um, like a framework for doing everything and just carrying on learning about how how we can sort of, about boring stuff as well about you know kind of you know the the ever changing kind of regulations around waste and all that kind of stuff is kind of boring but really informs the creative side as well so that's yeah. something else is an ongoing project. <laughs> But the result of your work and you, you know, communicating your process is that, you know, lots of other designers are hearing that message. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the small changes that they can make on a day to day on their projects that reflects the work that you're doing. That it's going to be that catalyst to hopefully significant change. Definitely going to be watching the space with, with you guys because it's really, really interesting work that you're doing. And we were super excited to speak to you today about it. So um, no, thanks for that. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally we kind of wrap up all our interviews with um, just a, a set of uh, questions um, and, and basically um, just really for our listeners so that's um, given your kind of your background and, and where you've taken things it's really kind of what advice you would both give 
to someone who is thinking of starting a career in landscape architecture. Um, a graduate is about to leave university, so about to enter the industry, um, and someone mid-career who is stuck in a rut in their current role. So I don't know if you're able to provide some. <laughs> I don't I'd probably say. I mean, I don't know what I would advise a mid-career artist. I'm not sure if I would like <laughs> deign to sort of uh, lecture somebody on what to do on that front. But um, I think in any case, it's sort of about. I mean, if you're just starting out, it's about immersing yourself in what you really love and, you know, kind of learning, not not restricting yourself to sort of looking at just, you know, landscape architecture projects. You know, you should look to the wider world and whatever, follow whatever is kind of drawing your interest. And probably if you trust your instincts on that, that you'll find a kind of a path that that really sort of you, you will do well in because you're kind of following your your own kind of interests mm. I think that's true and even if you know, everyone at the start of their career will have to do some mundane seeming projects um, but within those you know you can glean some some good good out of something that's seemingly mundane um, and through that you can then kind of prove to people that you know they're looking at a new new way of doing something or you have something different to to give yeah, I suppose you, it's about deciding what you want to do, isn't it? So it's different for everyone, but you know, if it's it's a good idea to really think about what what kind of person, what kind of landscape architect you would like to be in the future, how you think it should be, not just kind of signing up to, uh, you know, be a cad monkey for the rest of your life. Just, you, know, <laughs> you know, if you want, if you think it should be a certain way, then you could try to tailor your your career in that way. Go and find the the kind of people that you admire, the way they work, and if, you know, just learn from anybody who's cool and ignore the rest. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's such an exciting, <laughs> such an exciting time to to be part of it because because it is changing, the industry is changing, Every, all industries are changing, they have to change. Um, and that's just throwing up loads of different different ways of doing things. I think it's it's a really interesting time to, to take it on. Agree more. <laughs> Sorry, we probably haven't got any really wise words for that. <laughs> That's, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It's that is getting those little wins when you know the dark days of doing uh, 500 homes, you know, planting plants for 500 homes, and you slip a little plant in there that you know that's a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> What's, that thing <laughs> What's that thing where they used to um, in uh, in old buildings where they like you've you've uncovered things, you've taken things away from, so dismantled a wall, and you found like uh, people have sort of written things underneath, you know. Oh, so yeah. somebody's there like, mm, I'm yeah. doing another wall, you know, and they've yeah. written secret messages. Oh, there's all they, sorts uh, of crazy old graffiti behind <laughs> behind everything, all these different layers within a building. Um, going right back to kind of almost like anti-witch marks scratched into windows and yeah. walls and all sorts of stuff, but then going through to kind of more abusive graffiti about current politicians or, or whatever. But you can leave a secret message oh, for yeah. the people, Definitely. you know, in your CAD work perhaps, a layer Time that back. says... <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much for your time today. It's been really good catching up with you both. And um, yes, thank um, you very we'll, much. We'll leave it. Oh, it's lovely to talk thank to you. Thank you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Very <laughs> much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye. 
Okay, so that was um, Local Work Studio. Um, I think we really enjoyed that chat. Yeah, absolutely. A massive thanks to Ben and Loretta for giving up their time to um, well give our listeners a great insight into a really new and innovative way of approaching a project. And one that really speaks to, you know, these are that, you know, as I said in the interview, these, these kind of larger uh, issues that are becoming more and more apparent within our work and things that anyone involved in the built environment needs to respond to and have a have a sort of plan of action to address absolutely no i completely agree and, and this idea of connecting local materials um, with local makers or manufacturers which inherently creates um kind of a true placemaking doesn't it it's, it's yeah it's what placemaking is about and that 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 yeah often used word vernacular really becomes apparent through this process mm. and it's it's becomes the overarching um uh end kind of veneer on on this on these materials and the and materiality and the outcome of a project mm. i think that term <coughs> vernacular is used very much in kind of lip service isn't it and mm. it's it's used a lot but i think what uh, local works do is is really get into the depth of a of a, of a project and, and everything around it, even the people, the communities that, that use the space, um, mentioning about the podcast they do, mm. like one approach when they go to a site. Imagine that, doing a podcast with a local community Amazing. as part of your site assessment yeah. or analysis is a fantastic way of looking at it. That's real community engagement. Mm. You know, just to get really under the skin of a place and, and to really you know, do a project and a site it's that finer grain, isn't it? You, we yeah. do all the assessments, um, you know, the ecological assessments, the arboricultural assessments, the um, topographical, mm. the hydro- hydrology. We do all those sort of scientific assessments, but actually, you know, a placemaking assessment is, is effectively what they do, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the methods that they use are really interesting. And just down to the, you know, uh, Ben subsequently messaged us, didn't he? And yes. forgot to mention that he they have a workshop attached to their studio where they actually go out and play with materials and make new materials based on the projects that they're working on. I mean, that's a pretty exciting way of of kind of design development in a way, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think we're we're absolutely chuffed. I hope you guys um, listening really enjoyed that podcast, uh, that interview, and um, yeah. Any comments far away? Yeah. We're always on the socials, so at DWG Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, uh, DWGpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, likes, dislikes, and um, yeah, we'll speak to you next time. Until then, see you later.